can all stand for God's word, please. Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 29. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe, because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning, friends. It's um, so good to be back from a little R&R that we took. We were, we were at church service last Sunday, um, but um, more just as participants in the worship service, and it was wonderful to be here um, on that side <laughs> and hearing the Word of God preached and um, just being with you and having sweet fellowship, and it's, um, it's great to be here. Um, I'm continuing the spirit of my vacation in my um, pineapple shirt. So, because um, I want to remain on the beach in my head. <laughs> so, I, I wanted to let you know, too, I received in, um, in my email this week a thank you from the fourth grade teacher at Hucol. And I wanted to share this with you because uh, many of you know um, that, that many of you um, gave of your, of your time, your treasure, and your talents to provide um, 200 backpacks to the Hugh Cole School. 50 were for the teachers and 150 were for the students. We got the packing lists of, of all the school supplies that they needed per grade and we were here like animals. Um, uh, just doing the best we could, create, trying to create order out of chaos um, like God did in the days of creation. He did a better job though. Um, <laughs> no, but you guys did a great job. And, um, and we also provided all the teachers in Hugh Cole um, a gift card to a local restaurant. Um, so so, so um, they really um, experienced just a, an uncommon display of generosity. And I sent a letter to all the teachers. Um, and I was trying to be very careful not to be too preachy, right? Um, but I basically said, this is for you in Jesus' name. Um, because we love you and we, we value what you do. And uh, so this is a response that I got this week by way of email from, um, from one of the teachers. It says, hello, my name is Lynn and I teach fourth grade at Hugh Cole School. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your incredibly generous gifts. My students are putting to good use the supplies you donated in the backpack. It was so kind of you to give us the gift card for the pizza as well. Thank you so much. It is greatly appreciated. Sincerely, Lynn. And I just wanted to share that with you because um, we um, are desperate to show the love of Christ. Right? We do that in different ways, sometimes small ways. Um, and our heart is for the love of Christ to penetrate into the hearts and minds of our friends and neighbors. So thank you for that. We also had um, just an interesting um, week last week with, with respect to just different sicknesses and illnesses, that tragedy that happened in Warren. Um, and just thanks to the efforts of, of uh, Pat Marin and her diligent work with the police, um, it was a great privilege that when this happened, when this tragedy happened, one of the first people they called was our church. And, um, and that, that's a wonderful gift um, that we received. And this, G Jesus matters in this area. 
and what we do here to sound the love of Christ matters. And I hope that you know that and see that in your own lives personally, but also as we see just like the benefits and gifts and fruit of, of um, the, the diligence of your service and of your giving. So I wanted to share that with you. Thank you so much for your diligence. And I, I also do want to say that um, um, the Norman Damaris um, is Fran's son. And, um, and he has been, can you put the lights on a little? Just a little? The, the no lights, that's for like worship when we're all trying to hide that we're singing, right? <laughs> Thanks. Um, but uh, what was I saying? Oh yeah, so Norm is Fran's son and uh, he's been contacting me and others just to give us updates about Fran. Um, her condition um, is, is, is very up and down and she's, she's still in a very sensitive place. Um, and um, she's in the ICU and she has just a lot of challenges ahead. Um, she's doing well though right now. She's stable, the positive things happening. So keep praying for her and thank you for your diligent prayers for her. And there are just some other items I'd wanna, I wanted to pray for before we get into the sermon text this morning. So would you join me in prayer? God, I thank you so much, Lord, again, for your faithfulness to us. I thank you that you see us and that you hear us. Lord God, I thank you that you love us. God, sometimes life's challenges are too much for us to bear. God, you know that there are even people here this morning that are carrying a heavy load. There are people that just need a friend. God, would you give them a friend? There are people that need wisdom. God, would you give us wisdom? God, there are those that need holiness because they're struggling with sin. God, would you give us holiness? God, there are some, Lord, that are doubting you and starting to believe, to, to not trust in you as much as they did in their youth. God, would you strengthen our faith? Thank you, Lord, for your diligence, for preserving your church, that Jesus Christ is alive and well and continues his church. God, I want to pray, Lord, this morning for our sister Fran. Would you heal her, God? Would you be with her doctors and with her body even this moment and bring her out? God, we thank you, Lord, that she has the hope of life to come, and that is a reason to celebrate. But, God, we, we desire for her be, to live because to live is Christ. So I pray that you would heal her and save her. God, I also want to pray for um, Robin's husband, Dan, who went th through a, um, a pretty bad accident recently, that you would heal him. Bless him, provide for them, give them faith in Christ in the process of all this. God, I thank you, Lord, that today even we remember that 20 years ago, well, yesterday we remembered this, but 20 years ago, um, a very horrific tragedy happened to our collective um, experience here as citizens of the United States. And thousands of lives were lost over the years. God, would you give our country peace? Would you help our politicians to stop being so cruel to each other simply so that they can win? I pray, Lord, that we would have a spirit of unity, of love and compassion, of patience. I pray, Lord, that we would sound that as a bright light from our church because one little church matters and the way that we treat each other matters. Oh God, I pray, heal our nation. Give us a bright hope. Not because we have lots of money or great health care, or we don't have to wear masks in schools, or no one's forcing us to do stuff we don't want, but because we love and serve and worship Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Give us revival. Give our country revival. Give its church revival. Help us to worship you as Lord and Savior. Bless us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Let me just move this. I um, was reading recently um, about President Lyndon Johnson's grandfather. His name was George W. Baines. <clears throat> I'm setting my timer so I don't go too long. That's what this says. 
but his name was George W. Baines. And George, so Lyndon Johnson, that's like hundreds of years ago, right? That he was a president long ago of the United States of America. Um, <clears throat> his grandfather, George W. Baines, led a man named General Sam Houston to faith in Jesus Christ. And General Houston's life was dramatically changed when he came to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Um, upon his baptism, it's written about him that after he was baptized and professed his faith publicly, he began to donate um, a large portion, um, a large sum of money to cover half of the local minister's salary. And someone asked him, why on earth would you donate this large, immense amount of money? And he responded, when the Holy Spirit baptized me, he also baptized my pocketbook. <laughs> Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart is. That means you spend your money on the things you love. Just a function of life, right? I remember in my teens when I was in puppy love, I couldn't make enough money to spend it 100% on the, girl, the latest girl I had a crush on. I remember once when I was, I couldn't have been more than 18, maybe 17 years old. I took all the money that I had for this girl and I bought her the most expensive shoes I could find thinking, surely this will work. I mean, this will win her heart. Didn't work. <laughs> Ironically, I also bought my wife um, ruby slippers. That worked. I think she loved me, not so much the shoes. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. You spend money on what you love. It's just the reality. The, the things you love, the people you love, that's where it goes. If your hearts, if our hearts are Christ's and belong to Christ and belong to his kingdom, if we treasure his word, if we treasure his people, it will demonstrate itself in how we use our earthly treasure. If we love the poor, if we love the downcast, if we love those less fortunate than us, these won't be just words. We'll actually invest not, our, not just our money, but also our time, our work, our prayer. But if our hearts belong to the world, if we love its comforts and safety measures, our treasure will be invested in it. So friends, I'm continuing a sermon series that we began last week with Pastor Joe. And it's not so much a sermon about generosity as it is a message about baptism. And what I mean by that is simply this. When the Lord Jesus Christ baptizes us, he owns us. He has our hearts. That's what baptism sort of implies. We're immersed into this water. That's the symbol. But the baptism of salvation, the Holy Spirit, comes into our hearts. And he lives there. He baptizes us. So we have to all ask ourselves the question, have I been, is my heart been baptized by the Holy Spirit? Because friends, this isn't just about money that you give. This is about the way that we live our lives. This is about who we love most, right? When the love of Jesus baptizes our hearts, it baptizes our wallet. It's just the reality. Love, love baptizes money. <laughs> Today, there is no courses in seminaries um, that are required or even given by elective. So in other words, an elective is a choice. You can take that class. You don't have to, right? In seminaries, there are no required or elective classes devoted to the subject of stewardship. Pastors on the highest academic levels are not trained to deal with this issue. I was not trained to deal with this issue. Today, Americans, and consequently, the American church, has gained astronomical amounts of wealth. We are the wealthiest we have ever been in our history. But despite this, Dr. Randy Alcorn notes that dollar for dollar, the average American gave more money during the Great Depression than it does today. Because there is a sad social truth, and this is just true across the board, it's universal, it's not just American. As wealth increases, generosity decreases. We say the opposite. We say, you know, when I make more money, I'll give more. It's not true. 
Most of us say that, but statistics show that when wealth increases, generosity decreases. And here's why. Because the only thing that will increase generosity is to be baptized by the love of Christ. When you know how much he loves you, what he gave us in his life, in his death and resurrection, when we know that everything that we have is his anyway. So this morning I want to continue part two of a series on the subject of generosity, in particular tithing or stewardship, that Pastor um, Joe introduced last week, but I want to dig into it a little bit more. I want to talk about the subject of tithing. It's kind of a dirty word in the church. People don't like talking about it. We'd rather talk about divorce and remarriage or women in ministry, homosexuality even, anything but this. Right? Like, um, so let's talk about it. Let's define it in Scripture. We learn a great deal about what tithing is in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and other places in the Old Testament. In our passage that we read, in other passages like Leviticus 27, for example, and many others, we read things very similar to this, where it says, a tithe of everything from the land belongs to the Lord. I want to note, um, before I continue, and I didn't include this in my sermon, but I thought of including it, I didn't, and now I'm like, I need to. Um, did you notice that when the Israelites were told to bring a tithe um, to the temple, and they said that if you, if you have too much and you can't transport it, trade it for silver. And then when you get there, you can rebuy the goods and then you can eat them in my presence. That means something pretty cool. What they gave to the Lord, they got back. They ate their own food. So this 10% that they gave fed them, right? You say, well, how does that transfer to the New Testament in the church? The word of God is the bread of life. When you invest your money into the proclamation of God's word, it feeds you. Right? That's what that means. Okay. That's a bonus. <laughs> he says, a tithe of everything from the land belongs to the Lord. The meaning of tithe is tenth. Um, is a tenth or ten percent. Some uh, in our world, a lot of times what we mean by tithe is it's whatever you give regularly. Three percent, one percent, seven, whatever it might be. A tithe from the land, though, in the Old Testament wasn't one percent. It would have been disobedience since the word, if it was one percent, because the word tithe means tenth. According to Matthew chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, to give less than a tithe would be to rob God. Um, also, it says in Matthew, Malachi chapter 3, I, th I think I might have said Matthew, I meant Malachi, the Lord instructs, brings, bring the whole tithe to me. So not 5% of it or 7 or 2, the whole tithe. And what's more, I think um, Pastor Joe mentioned this last week, Israel had more than one tithe. Do you know this? They actually had three tithes. Um, two of those tithes were once a year, right? So in other words, 10% of the produce of the year, and then another 10% of the produce of the year, and then they had a third tithe, which was every three years. So all said and done, 23% was given as a, as, as a tithe, which was included in three. Does that make sense? Now, some of these, the, Israel was not just a, a, a church in the sense that we know it, or a religion. This wasn't just to support their faith. They were also a nation, so some of this was taxes. <clears throat> but we know that at least one of them was for religious purposes. And tithing, by the way, wasn't, uh, wasn't just part of the law or, or part of the legal system of Moses. Both Abraham and Jacob tithed um, well before Moses introduced the law of tithing to the nation of Israel. So tithe basically, if we can just kind of define it very simply, was a tenth of their produce, or uh, we, what we would consider our income a tenth of the produce or a tenth of their silver that went to support the priests and religious functions. At least one of those tithes did that in its entirety. What's more, that's not it. The, 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 the children of Israel were to told, ab instructed about genera generosity, not just through the act of tithing, but also through something that Scripture calls first fruits. Have you ever heard this? In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Honor the Lord with all your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. 
The tithe deals with quantity, 10%, how much. First fruits deals with the quality of the gift, right? If, if the tithe deals with the quantity of our generosity, first fruits deals with the quality of our generosity. First fruits implies priority, doesn't it? Yeah. It's instructing Israel to prioritize their goods to go to the Lord first before they paid all of their other bills. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. To not give what you might happen to have left over, right? So they didn't look at all their, all their income and say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend it all on me first, and whatever's left over, that I'll give to the Lord. They didn't do it like that. They put the Lord first. What's more, they gave the best of what they had so if they had 100 apples, they didn't give God the 10 crummy ones. They gave God the 10 best ones. They were not to come in Exodus chapter 23. They were instructed, do not come to the, to the temple with empty hands. Neither were they to come with leftovers, but with the first production of their crops. Leviticus 19, Exodus 23, Numbers chapter 15, and so on. The basic idea of first fruits is that God's people were showing God that everything that they had was his already and that he was more important than their stuff. And it's why Jesus said again that where your treasure is there your heart will be too. It also displayed that they trusted God for the rest for, to supply their needs. It's not unlike why Israel and the church by the way are told to take a day off and rest. Did you know that when you take a day off and you don't work, you make less money? Isn't that true? Here's a principle in life. I don't know if you've gotten it yet. But if you don't work, you don't get money. Right? This was even more so the case, maybe less so. It's getting less so for, for that for us nowadays. But it was more so the case for ancient Israel. If they didn't work on Sunday or Saturday for them, there would be no one to... to to take care of the crops. There would be no one to trade with foreigners. They wouldn't be making money. Why would anyone, especially impoverished Jews and the ancient Near East, far less, far less wealthy than we are, impoverished we might say, why would these people in the ancient Near East sacrifice an entire day of production to worship God? Why would they take a whole day off, not just an hour and a half, Right to, I'll go to church and then I'll go back to work or something like that. No, they, they took a whole day off and said, I'm going to worship God today. Why would they do this? When they could be trading with foreigners or maybe plowing a little bit more of that field so they didn't lose as much corn or whatever it was that they were plowing. The reason that they did this is because it demonstrated that God was more important to them than money. That they needed him more than that. Right? It demonstrated that if he didn't provide, then no matter how many days of the week they worked, it would be fruitless. In other words, God can do more in one day than I can do in six. Do you believe that? Do you believe it enough to not work for one day and to worship Jesus Christ with God's people? Do you believe it enough to be generous with what God has given you? That one's a little harder, right? I heard less amens for that one. <laughs> I have a hard one. It's hard for me too, brothers and sisters. I get it. But not taking a day off to worship God, not providing the tithe proved whether or not they trusted in themselves or God. It's why God didn't tell just the rich to observe the Sabbath, but the poor can work because they need the money, right? He, did, he doesn't say, he says, the whole nation of Israel, I want you to take a day off, stop working, stop making money, and worship me because you need me. All money, all corn, all potatoes, all of it comes from me. So worship me, love me, trust me more than you do your own hands. Right? It's why God didn't tell the rich or the middle class that they, they should tithe. They should observe the Sabbath, but the poor, they should keep working and toiling and laboring 
and they don't have to give anything because they're poor. Scripture doesn't give that exception. So first fruits is the commitment to give the first and the best before any other personal payments or needs are considered. It's the first, if you like this language, it's the first line on your budget. There's an Old Testament story about two priests, Hophni and Phinehas. Have you heard of these guys? They decided that they wanted to eat and take everything that was best for them and leave the rest for God. And scripture says, quote, their sin was very great before the Lord and they were struck down. You know what that means? They were killed. Not because they didn't give enough. It's because their hearts were off. They loved God's stuff more than they loved God. They trusted in, in material provision, in comforts, more than they did their relationship with, with, with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, friends, this is so much more deeper than a, than a sermon on your wallet or your pocketbook. This is who's, who, to whom does your heart belong? Because all of this is reflective not, in so many different ways of life, in our fellowship with each other. Do we read the scriptures? Do we pray? Do we seek God daily? Do we love him more than our own personal goals? Are we asking him, where, where are you leading me today, Lord, rather than where I'm leading myself? You see, this is, this is about the baptism of the Spirit. Does your heart belong to Christ? So the first fruits for Israel was a thermometer of their spiritual health. It showed whether or not they loved God and trusted God and needed him above all. So before they would pay any other bills or debts, they would give first fruits to God the best of what they had. So in addition to this, it gets better for Israel. <laughs> they also had what was called voluntary offerings. Okay? <clears throat> the people of Israel were expected to give a tithe. They needed to. It was an obligation. It was a law, a command. But voluntary offerings were just that, voluntary. They're, they were in addition to the, the, to the tithe. So it was more subjective. We might, say, we might say it like this. It was they, they, gave, they gave as they were led, right? The voluntary offering was not to replace the tithe, but was on top of it, you see, of those three tithes. So in Exodus chapter 35, all who were willing, underline willing, brought to the Lord free will offerings. This was to build the tabernacle. So, so far, if you're like me, you're doing the math. So you're telling me, Moses, that we're given 23%, and now you want some more gold and wood and cloth and stuff to build a tent? Right? The nerve. You think this would create problems. And, and friends, when God's people are unhealthy, it does. It does create. But when God's people are healthy, this is the reaction. Exodus chapter 36. Moses gave an order. No man or woman is to, make any, is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. So they restrained because what they already had was more than enough. In other words, not only were they tithing, but they brought so much to Moses to build the tabernacle that, that he had more than he needed. It was a delight for me about four years ago, if you remember. We, we had, maybe we're in here for about a year, year and a half. And it was kind of tight and dank in here, if you remember. Um, and there were more walls up, and we, we wanted to make it open, and we wanted to make it just a nicer, um, have a nicer place for people to come and visit that were maybe seeking Christ. So it was a delight for me. When we did this, we needed some money to do it. And we set a goal. We told you guys. And you guys responded so well and so generously that I, I think maybe some, a few weeks or months went by where I, had to actually ha I actually had to tell you, you can stop giving now. We, we reached our goal. Thank you. Do you remember that? I'm not lying, right? right? Some of you were there like, yeah, I don't remember that, buddy. Right? What a great gift that was. It was very similar to what we saw happen in Exodus chapter 36. The voluntary offering demonstrated the quality of the heart giving it, not the amount given. Right? So let's summarize a little bit here. For Israel, tithing was the starting point. It was the training wheels, right, of giving. It wasn't the ceiling, it was the floor. It was a demonstration of both obedience and trust in the Lord, but it was also done out of joy and love for the Lord and for his presence. One author wrote of ancient Israel, 
the grace of giving transformed a pack of gripers and whiners into joyful worshipers. Isn't that interesting? Might the same thing happen in the church today? And I'm glad to see so many of you share that sentiment. I don't, I don't preach this to a church that I think doesn't get this. I preach this to a church that very many of you understand these principles and have been so generous um, and kind. But we all need to, I think, hear these reminders again and again. So their giving was a demonstration of both obedience and trust, but also done out of love for the Lord. <clears throat> King David, at the end of his reign, I found this like little nugget. It was beautiful this week. But King David, at the end of his reign, he's getting old now. He wants to build not just a tent for the Lord, but a permanent temple. And he says, God, I want to I make you a temple. And he says, I love your heart, but you can't do it because you're a man of war. Do you remember this? So he says, okay, I'll do as much as I can without actually building it. So he gets all the supplies. He starts this massive fundraising project in all of Israel. He gets the wood, the gold, the silver, the gems, the cloth, everything. And he, and he stockpiles this stuff for Solomon. And this is what he says, after all this, after this massive fundraising campaign, everything is ready to go. All Solomon's got to do now is build it. He says this in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. I now give my personal treasure of gold and silver for the temple of my God over and above everything that I've provided. And what's more, this is what he said. Listen to the beautiful heart of King David. Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give so generously? <laughs> what? Who's ever said that? Who's ever said that but King David? Who am I that I should be able to give so generously? Who are my people that we should be able to give so generously? Why? What? Because for David, it wasn't just being generous. It wasn't just a gift. He knew that he was investing in the word of God, the proclamation of the presence and word of God in the world. Who are we that we should be able to be part of a community that is able to herald the life-giving word of God to people? that God would use us for that task, that God would sanctify my dollar bills and my words and my work to that end. That is great news. Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given only what comes from your hands. What a beautiful perspective. So tithing was a matter of obedience, but giving as a whole went far beyond the tithe when Israel had a heart that loved God. Love for God increases generosity. That is just a basic underlying principle. Love for God increases generosity. And that goes, again, far beyond just the subject of the amounts of money that we might give to our church. It's, it's a way of, when we love God, we become generous people. We look for reasons to forgive people that have offended us. We, we look for those less fortunate to serve and help. We pray for the lost neighbor or friend or family member. You see, when we love God, we start to think of ourselves less. And we want his will and purpose done in our lives and in our world. So love for God increases generosity. It doesn't decrease it. So some argue, okay, what about today? What does this have to do with the church? Because some, argue, some have argued against tithing in the church. Um, they have called it legalism. Okay? Um, some have argued that we're not under the law, but under grace. Um, you, you might have heard statements like this, I don't believe in tithing, I believe in grace giving. Right? <clears throat> I used to think like this, but not so much anymore. I believe, of course, that everything that we do is motivated by grace. It would be like saying that I don't believe in daily prayer because the law of Moses tells us to pray daily, right? Praying daily isn't a legalistic ritual that we do just because the law of Moses said to do it. I'm not under the law because I pray daily or because I gather with you all. Any act of devotion, please underline this. This is a very important thing to remember. Any act of devotion to Jesus can become legalism. Coming to church can become legalism. Praying can become legalism. Reading your Bibles can become legalism. We'll get to the, what I mean by that in a moment. But any act of devotion to Jesus can become legalism. 
So going to church, praying, reading our Bibles, all of these things were instructed in the law of Moses, yet we continue to do them, and we don't say, I'm not doing those because I don't want to be legalistic, right? Something can be, just because something can become legalistic doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but rather that we should address our heart and our motivations for doing it. Does that make sense? Dr. Alcorn, Dr. Alcorn again comments, anyone who stops going to church praying or reading scripture for fear of being legalistic is approaching the problem from the wrong angle. Jesus, in Matthew 23, affirmed tithing, right? Tithing was in place before the law of Moses, as we saw both in, with Abraham and Jacob. The early church continued to practice it faithfully and regularly for 400 years, according to Irenaeus, Jerome, Augustine, and more. So tithing was a part of the early church. It, it, was, some, it was a part of their, their sort of upbringing that, that continued and carried through to the church. When different things were being demanded, such as circumcision for to be right with God, Paul immediately, we dealt with this in Galatians, he said, no, you don't need to be circumcised. But never do we read anywhere that we don't need to tithe. He said, we don't, we don't need to meet on Saturday. He, he addressed that. We don't need to continue sacrifices. He addressed that. You see, there are parts of the law of Moses that were complete in Christ, and we don't need to continue them, but there are very many aspects of the law of Moses that do continue on. See? Because it's not the law of Moses, it's the law of God. <clears throat> yeah, I've heard a lot of people say this. I've said this, Okay. So if you've said this to me, this isn't a passive-aggressive dig to you, okay? Oh, you know what the problem with the church is today? We're not like the early church anymore. We need to be like the early church. Okay. All right, let's, let's just really think about what we're saying. Um, because that would mean that we're here every week, gathering with God's people. That would mean that we're with each other more than once a week, somewhere, in someone's house, right? That would mean that we have a pastor and a congregation that we're committed to, right? It would mean that we would continue our fellowship. It would mean that we would be involved in corporate prayer as much as we could, wherever it was happening. It would mean that we would pray daily on our own, that we would read our Bibles with God's people um, publicly and privately. It would mean that we would share our faith. It would mean that we would send some of you to China and India and Taiwan and these sorts of places. See? Oh, and also it would mean that we would tithe, because they did. Right? Because they were nuts about this stuff. They loved Christ. It wasn't legalism. You couldn't stop them from doing these things. They loved, they were motivated by love, not the law, but they still had habits. They still had disciplines that they followed out of that love. You see? The Bible repeatedly says that we're not under the law but grace, but that means two things, okay? We're not under the law but under grace. We talked about this for a long time in Galatians, okay? Um, and I hope that what you got from, from those sermons that we read were these two things. We're not under the law under, but under grace, and that means two things. Certain religious obligations are no longer required for the church to do it all. We don't have to meet on Saturday. We can eat, we don't have to refrain from eating, eating certain foods. We don't have to sacrifice, sacrifice um, cows and sheep and things like pigeons and bring them to the temple, right? There are certain laws in the Old Testament law of Moses. Circumcision is no longer a requirement as a religious duty, right? And the reason why is because Jesus, in his death and resurrection, answered all that finished all that, right? So it means not being under the law but being under grace means that there are certain religious obligations we don't have to do anymore that were given by way of instruction to Moses. But it also means this. It's more than that. It means that the religious duties that we do continue to do, like gather, share our faith, pray, that those things those re religious observances that continue, we are convinced we, do, we don't do them 
because we think they're making us better than other Christians or more right with God or increasing his love for us. We do them out of love for him because he loves us already. You see? So not, in that sense, I believe in grace giving. But believing in grace giving doesn't mean that anything goes. Not living under the law does not mean that there are no laws in the Christian life. <laughs> right? What's more, some laws in the Old Testament law of Moses in some acts of worship are affirmed and continued and even amplified in the New Testament. Jesus affirmed thou shalt not murder, for example, by saying, hey, it's, it's worse than that. I don't want you to just not murder. I don't want you to hate people because hate is murder. Murder is in your heart. So Jesus upped the ante. He created a greater responsibility, not a lesser one. See? He said, adultery isn't just about sex with someone that's not your wife or your husband. It's lust in your heart. Friends, I'm concerned that when people have said, when I have said that they don't believe in tithing, that what we really mean is that we're looking for a theological loophole to give less, not more. Right? So you can disagree with, you can say, oh, that's the Old Testament. It's not intact. Okay. But does God expect less from you and not more? <clears throat> when we say that we're free to give as we're led, friends, I'm always led to really not give all that much. <laughs> right? Like, that's just the reality. I'm, I, you know, I'm led to, you know, like, the, the Holy Spirit's leading me to give nothing. Right? The heart of the Spirit-led local church isn't less. It's... It's not less generosity. It's not less time. It's not less service. Oh, we, we can pray half as much as they did in the Old Testament, right? It's he owns all of me. I'm baptized with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ, right? Present your body as a holy and living sacrifice, which is your reasonable, accept, uh, reasonable service of worship. So we could call the expectation of New Testament generosity Tithing plus, not tithing minus. Now let's wrap this up with the importance of this. Why is this so important? Our text reads this, okay? That you may learn. It, said, it told Israel to give generously for this purpose. That you may learn to revere the Lord your God and rejoice. This is sort of the school of reverence. It's how we learn to revere God. Because when we, got, when we give God something that we're trusting in, inevitably what that means is we're trusting him. If I, okay, let me, let me say it to you like this. If I let one of you watch my kids, my, my nine-year-old daughter, my six-year-old daughter, and my three-year-old son, what a, they're precious to me, right? I love them. So if I let you watch them, what does that mean about you? I trust you. I trust you with that which is most important to me. You see, if I only trust me, I'm never going to let anyone watch my kids. Isn't that true? If I only trust me or my wife or a handful of people, they're the only ones. And, you know, that's pretty common nowadays. There's, there's a select few people that, that we'll let our kids kind of be alone with. Right? And that's, that's wise, but it's, it's just true. If I give you what's most precious to me, it means I trust you. So if, if all of our lives we've been trusting in our treasure, and then all of a sudden we take a big chunk of it and say, I'm giving it to God, we have to trust him. It forces us to revere God. Because now we're saying, all the stuff that I thought that I needed to live, to be comfortable with, to be happy with, I'm giving it away. What does that mean? It means i got to trust God. He's got to be the one that I trust, not my money, not my gold, not my silver, right? So to revere God is to put him first. He is of first importance. One author, one author um, said that when you tie, that reminds you, the 10% reminds you of the 90%. Let me explain. Um, because it's a calculation, right? 10% is a calculation. You can't do that calculation unless you count everything you have. Isn't that true? I'm, not, I'm no math whiz, but I'm pretty sure that if I get $1,000 and I want to tithe it, I have to know, I got to count it and know I have $1,000, right? 
So I gotta tie, I gotta know how much I have. You can't figure out 10% unless you know the whole amount. And when you start doing this, you're reminded of all that God has done for you. The abundance of it all. Wow, I have this much? God has given me this much? It's, it's unbelievable sometimes when you actually go through that discipline to, to, to see in the course of a month and in the course of a year all of the generous provision God has poured down on you. You're forced to look at it, right? When you do this, when we do this, we're reminded of all that God has done for us, the abundance of it all, and we learn reverence for him because now we're taking some of it and saying, I'm giving it back to you. Normally I trusted in having all of it, but I'm, I'm going to trust you with what's, with what's left because you even give me that too. He has given all this to me. I need him or I am nothing. You start to learn that. There's nothing that I, my hands can do unless he gives me the, work, the power to do it. So the act of regularly and faithfully giving reminds me that not only is my money his, but everything is his and I am his and without him, the 90% isn't going to bail me out, and neither is the 100%. I've noticed in my life, this is just a true working principle, that when I trust, when I start trusting in money and needing it, I never have enough. I can get a raise, I can get a better job and have more, and I think, oh, now I'm comfortable, but I'm still focused on it. I still don't have enough, right? I've learned that, that in life, that when I trust my money, I can never have enough of it. And that's the point. That's the, po that's the point. That's what it means. You learn reverence. You don't need all of it. I don't need all my stuff. God has called me to be generous and to need him and to trust him. Malachi chapter 3, again, Israel had stopped supporting their churches, or at least their version of churches. God rebukes them. Do you not need my word? Do you not need my love? Do you not need my help? Have you forgotten me? Have you trusted in your employer, in your, your marketplace skills? He says, stop for a day and watch how I provide for you. Be generous with your neighbors, with the poor, with God's people. Watch how I provide for you. Commit and I will provide. And that's, I'm going to close with this word I've shared with you um, before. Some of this, some, some of you I've shared with with. Um, this quote with you before, but I think it's really powerful. There's this guy named W.H. Morey, and he was a, um, an Englishman who was a climber, one of the earliest Englishmen to climb Mount Everest. And he said this, until one is committed, there is hesitancy. The chance to draw back, always in effectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, that the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents, meetings, and material assistance which no man could have dreamt would come his way. So he was insecure. Climbing Mount Everest is a big deal. It requires a lot of money, right? You need to pay Sherpas. You need, you need people with you. You need a lot of gear, right? So it's, it's very dangerous, and at the time, it was even more dangerous. So they were sort of being a little bit hesitant. They didn't have enough money. Were they ready? Did they know every, every nook and cranny of the mountain? Were they prepared? Now, they had to prepare, and they did prepare, but who can be who can know all the answers? Who truly can be 100% prepared for everything? At some point, we got to take a step and know that, you know, it's dangerous. It's dangerous out there. We don't have all the answers. So he decided with his friend that he was climbing Mount Everest with, there were unanswered questions. He said, let's buy a ticket to India and we're going to go. And when he did that, um, along the way, that's what, that's what he says here. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents, meetings, and material assistance, which no man could have dreamt would have come his way unless they had made that choice to commit themselves. And friends, here's what I'm telling you this morning. Follow Jesus Christ. 
let go of all the things that you think you need and pursue him and he'll provide. He is our provider. He loves us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for how you've provided for our lives. I look back at my life and all the, the plans that I've had, the things that I've desired to do, the dreams of my life, college and seminary, all these different things that had their own subsets of problems and things that I needed, money, intelligence, wisdom, all sorts of stuff, and you've always provided for us, for me. God, I thank you, Lord, that, that you've never disappointed me. I pray, Lord, would you bless these people. Teach us holiness. Set us apart. Help us to surrender everything that is ours to yours. Help us to surrender our plans, our will to you. God, I pray, Lord, that if you tell us, if, we want, if we've been wanting to go right our whole lives and you tell us to go left, I pray that we would go and trust you. Oh, that, that nexus can be heartbreaking. Sometimes at that nexus there is loss in, in ways we never wanted to lose. God, you told Job, I want you to go down this path, which doesn't include your old family, and it doesn't include your old business, and it doesn't include your old, your old wealth, but it does include me, so trust me. Oh God, so often in life you tell us, I'm, I've prepared a road for you, a way for you, and there's a lot of sacrifice on it, but I'm with you. God, I pray, Lord, that we would not lose heart, that, that we would trust you. And God, if there's anyone here this morning that's grieving a loss, would you encourage that heart to know that the Lord, the King of all, is on your side, and he is going to rescue you because he delights in you. I pray, Lord, help us to live our lives as if nothing belongs to us because nothing does belong to us. Help us to preach Help us to pray, help us to read your word, help us to give generously, help us to go to the ends of the earth, and help us to stop making so many demands and to follow you. Not my will, Jesus said, your will be done. Friend, if you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, would you come to him this moment? He died for sinners like you and like me. And if you come to him in repentant faith, all of your sin will be washed away. You'll be whiter than snow and you'll be clothed in robes of righteousness and you will be this secured in eternal home with your heavenly father that you have been reconciled with because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Come to him by faith. God, thank you, Lord, for this morning. Bless the rest of our time together in Jesus' name. Amen.